0: You ask some questions now for a few minutes, and uh, if I run out of time at lunchtime, I'll eat the overage instead of making you not. But, you know, we've had a couple of pretty heavy-duty days at things, and I suppose, I mean, if, if the Lord is is blessing his word, a lot of the questions you want to ask, you're asking yourself and, and doing some heart-searching. But if there are questions or comments on the things that we've covered over the last couple of days that you'd like to... Uh, uh, comment on or ask about before they pass from your minds completely. We'll take a few minutes now uh and maybe touch on some things. Yeah, Jim. what happens when you go
1: to a brother and he doesn't want to
0: listen Yeah, right. That we'll get into the the question of what happens when you go to a brother and he doesn't respond And that's really what Matthew 18 is talking about. If if he listens, you win your brother. If he doesn't, you take two or three others. So we'll be going through that that procedure for what to do. But it is important to bear in mind that that Paul does say in uh, Romans 12, as much as is possible with you to live at peace with all men, it is possible to do everything you possibly can faithfully to restore a brother and him still be unwilling to be restored after all is said and done. But by the time the process finishes... That brother is no longer treated as a brother because uh, the process of discipline has made it evident that he is so hardened in his rebelliousness that he's no more acting like a brother by responding to the word of Christ, the word of the shepherd. But that will come out as we work through the procedure in Matthew 18 in more detail. Yes. Okay, what is a brother? I think within this context, we're talking about somebody else who professes Christ and is in the fellowship of the local church. I, w- I wouldn't particularly want to um, necessarily restrict it to formal church members, since we do even in our Reformed churches have a number of professing people who, for one reason or another, haven't yet formally united with the church. But someone who professes Christ, claims to be a brother of Christ, and is part of our fellowship. I mean, presumably that'd be where. We, but we might meet a you know a, a Baptist friend who we offend or they offend us. They're part of another church, but they're still a professing believer. So I think that's what a brother is. Yeah, well, I think the, the process of discipline will guarantee that by the time you're finished with the, uh, the application of the procedure, you will know for sure. Uh, if he professes to be a brother, you know, whatever you might think about whether or not he has the fruit in his life, and uh you know I, I am not of the opinion that we're uh, allowed to just sort of make private judgments about the condition of one another's soul, even on the basis of fruit. I think it is the elders of the church that have been charged by Jesus with admitting and excluding from the fellowship. Now we don't practice that quite as rigorously maybe as we should, because we do allow people to profess faith and the elders will give them the benefit of the doubt, but not necessarily receive them as members, because maybe the people don't want to be members. So that's where the slop in the system is. But apart from that, if, if somebody professes to be a Christian, then I think you can, in good faith, go to them and do what Jesus says. And if they don't, if they're not a believer, let's say, uh, we we wouldn't know that until we had finished the procedure, but let's say they are not a Christian. They're a hypocrite. Well, that hypocrisy will become increasingly evident by their refusal to listen to you and to the two or three others and to the church and so forth. So that by the time you're finished, when Jesus says, treat them as a non-believer, you can be confident that that's the appropriate way to treat them once you've gone through all the steps. But I think it would be wrong to sort of make a private judgment that this is not a believer at the outset and therefore not even begin to confront him. Oh, yeah. Okay. The question was, what if it's a Christian that's a member of another church or maybe a professing Christian that isn't a member of any church so that once you get beyond the personal confrontation or the two or three witnesses, then where do you go from there? And uh, in some instances, you may not be able to go any further from there. And the kind of functional judgment that, that the church makes will have to be made sort of informally given the kind of situation. But I think even if it's another church, If you get up to formal discipline, you ought to at least make an attempt, even if it's a church that doesn't practice discipline or maybe doesn't even have the machinery. Maybe they don't have elders, don't even have a board of deacons, just a pastor. Well, you could go to that pastor as the shepherd of that flock and say, I need your help now to follow through with the next step of Matthew 18. But it does get very difficult in American society because there's no pressure yet from the culture sufficient to drive all the Christians into the church. So a lot of Christians are floating around there on the fringe uh, and uh, everybody gives them the benefit of the doubt. So that means some of our discipline has to operate kind of in a parachurch way. And uh, and yet there are even ways that that can be done. One of the things I was going to mention later, it was interesting the way um, one of those books again mentions it. I think it, it may be still in that one by, about when the saints come marching in where An accusation against Tony Campolo was made about heresy a few years ago. You may have heard something about it. He's an evangelist and a teacher, Um, and he was dismissed from speaking at a conference. Well, it wasn't an ecclesiastical kind of discipline, but they got a panel of other ministers and theologians together to kind of function like a session in solving this problem between Campolo and uh, Bill Bright from Campus Crusade, and it did work effectively. The men agreed to uh, submit to the findings of this... uh, kind of pseudo session so even in a para ecclesiastical setting it can work if there's a desire for men to do what the scripture requires but it gets a lot more tangled up um, when you have multiple jurisdictions and then a whole bunch of people that aren't really under any jurisdiction formally so yeah Doc? well I do too but that's a point from a for a different set of lectures question is can you be a professing Christian and not be a member of the church You know, someday somebody could serve the church well by just working through the whole question from a biblical standpoint of church membership and what it is and what it isn't and who ought to be members of the church. I mean, I think we have reformed ecclesiology that uh, I think answers those questions biblically, but the practice, at least, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church doesn't conform to that as rigorously as I personally would like. You know, we do tend to... Uh, assent to the credible profession of faith by somebody without examining them and receiving them if they don't ask for it or if we don't insist upon it. And so we do have this kind of halo group of professing believers that are not formally members. Maybe they should be formally members. Maybe our definition of formal membership isn't adequate to take those people into account. But I do think it also has to do with the society and the culture. Uh, I've talked to foreign missionaries where that's not particularly a problem, because when somebody is ready to make a profession of faith, he better get in the church because he's going to be rousted by the society, and there isn't really any nice neutral ground to stand on. But that's not the case in American society most of the time. Church membership is perceived by a lot of evangelicals as kind of a second step. First you become a Christian, then you become a member of the church. As I read the New Testament, to do one is to do the other but it is the elders who have the authority and the responsibility for deciding whether when somebody professes Christ, that's a believable profession. And it isn't believed by the church until the elders have passed judgment on it. So, but anyway, that's a good question, and that's a good area for study, too. Yes. Yeah, okay, the question, what, what would be a real cause for rebuke? Uh, that's kind of a judgment call in the sense that uh, the scripture does say that love, especially among believers, covers a multitude of sins. And J. Adams has suggested in a number of his books that that's the first thing you ought to try and do. Can I overlook this and genuinely overlook it where it is no longer a problem for me, where I don't bring it up to myself or to another person? And if we can do that, that's the way we ought to handle it. But if we make that effort and there still is some kind of friction, you know, we wake up in the night dreaming about what this person did to us and it's still troubling us, or the next time we have a conflict with that person, we not only remember the new conflict, but we remember the old one too, then it's like an iceberg where you may be buried most of it, but there's still something sticking up above the water that needs to be dealt with, and that's where correction or rebuke comes in. Or perhaps it's a sin that isn't a particularly serious infraction, in and of itself, but it, it, it happens repeatedly enough that it really is a besetting kind of sin, a bad habit uh, uh, that, that a person would be better free of, and you want to try and help them. You know, not every rebuke, I mean, a rebuke is saying that something is wrong. It's not tearing somebody's head off necessarily or, or you know, chewing them up one side or down the other. Rebukes can be very gentle. And if we are as eager to receive correction as we are to give it, then we ought to be making it easy on our brothers and sisters to rebuke us. Um, so I think that's sort of where you want to want to draw the line between what needs a rebuke and what can be overlooked. But then again, gentleness and a real concern to rebuke so as to restore rather than to rebuke so that you can prove that you were right and they were wrong. I don't know whether that answers your question, but that's... Okay, I see what... Yeah, all right. What, what if, what if uh, the point of the rebuke is a debatable point? Legitimately debatable. Well, then I think going even to rebuke, and one of the passages that, uh, you know, in, uh, when Jesus talks in, in Luke 17 about rebuking, and I didn't make this point, Adams makes it in his uh, book on church discipline, I think, the word there is to rebuke tentatively. That is, you rebuke giving your brother the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I haven't seen things right, maybe there are extenuating circumstances, maybe this is a debatable point, but this concerns me. You drink let's say, and I'm not sure whether that's right or wrong. Well, that could be an occasion for you together to search the scriptures and come to one mind, and maybe you'll end up still disagreeing, but there'll be real understanding that there's a there's latitude for some liberty here. And that's much better than for you to be concerned about the problem, not say anything about it, so you just kind of carry it in your heart all the time, and it's a constant source of friction. So there, there can be a tentativeness about a rebuke. Um, and it may be something that isn't right or wrong morally, but does cause a problem between you and, and, and another brother that inhibits your fellowship. You know, let's say somebody, this is really a silly, trivial kind of uh, thing, but it, it would be a real problem. Let's say somebody just doesn't bathe very often. Okay, now can you go to the Bible and say not to take a shower every day is sin? Probably not. But do you like to fellowship with somebody who smells bad? No. So is it wrong for you to go and say, this is really a trouble to me? And if the other person says, well, I do it as a matter of religious principle, I'm a monk and I like to smell bad. <laughs> then you do have something you can get a hold of because he's got a, an unbiblical view of the body. But on the other hand, if he said, well, gee, I didn't know it bothers you, but if it keeps you from coming to visit me and we can't have fellowship, then I'd be happy to take a shower every day and you solve the problem. Like I say, that's a trivial thing. But there are things that bug us about one another that are not necessarily matters of sin and righteousness. But that doesn't mean we have to just live with being bugged. We can talk about it, try and understand it better, and then maybe we still will have a difference of opinion on the subject, but there will be some understanding there that wasn't there before. Yeah? Can you forgive someone who is not repentant? Ultimately, I think not. (coughs) except to the, the extent that uh, that you might be covering an offense that that you genuinely can put it behind you. But, you know, forgiveness means that this is not an offense that I'm going to bring up to myself or to the Lord or to this person. Well, if someone sins and continues to sin, and after being rebuked and corrected, hardens his heart and sins further, then the offense is still there. You know, the, the, the point of rebuke is, and forgiveness is, that once the offense has been taken away through repentance, then there is no impediment, and we can't have any leftover impediment, hard feelings, bitterness, anything like that, that would inhibit that kind of fellowship. But as long as the offense is there, there is a breach in fellowship. And I think that's what Scripture says about God's forgiveness. Our sins separate us from God. When we repent, He forgives them through the blood of Christ. But if we are unrepentant, we are still estranged from God, and there can't be that kind of fellowship. Now, he, in his sovereign grace, may work further in us to overcome that. We can't change somebody's heart. God can. But I think ultimately, until somebody repents, there cannot be forgiveness. There may be understanding. There may be patience. There may be long-suffering. But there can't be forgiveness.
1: Yeah, Jim. The uh, the person, are you content to talk Pleased with part of my holiness, satisfied with part of the spiritual health, felt happy enough to let it spiritual victory. Uh, if we're not pleased with one, well, if we don't have 100% spiritual victory, enough to have, we can't
0: Okay, yeah, Jim's alluding to the end of that first message where I was talking about being satisfied with part-time holiness or short-term profits and so forth and sort of encouraging us to be dissatisfied with that. And yet, if contentment is part of what is great gain, how can we be dissatisfied and content at the same time? Maybe the easiest way to understand what I'm getting at there is I think that self-satisfaction really is a manifestation of the flesh that we are pleased with what we can do essentially on the basis of our own resources, and we should never be satisfied with what the flesh produces. Um, On the other hand, contentment that comes from God is a work of the Spirit in our hearts that comes as he works grace, as we are more faithful and obedient, and as that brings new assurance. And so our, uh, our experience is sort of intention. At the one hand, we can be very serious and very disappointed over failures to obey God, and yet rejoice and delight and be grateful for his work of grace in our hearts. So that, uh, and I've seen this in some seasoned saints, you get this sort of paradoxical emotion. You know, they, they take sin more seriously than I do, and yet they have deeper joy and greater contentment at the very same time, and you figure out, well, how can that be? Well, it's because the one has its source in the flesh which needs to be crucified day by day, the old man. The other has its fountainhead in the work of the spirit of grace and that should be growing. As we decrease, Christ and his ministry in our life would increase. And so assurance, confidence, boldness grows as our holiness and as our sanctification grows. But oftentimes the rub between self-satisfaction and contentment in God comes when we're faced with making a decision or overcoming a sinful problem in our life that appears to us to be insoluble. It's just too tough. You know, it's an old habit that we've had forevermore. We know it's sinful, but it's always been there, and we're stuck with it. That's just the way it is. And, and we know it's wrong. We know that Christ has promised the victory, but the only way that we can overcome it is to believe his promise, and we're thinking, well, maybe I can live without overcoming that sin. I mean, it's not intolerable for me to continue in this problem. And so we we wrestle between a self-satisfaction, have I gone far enough, and the confidence that God can really sanctify us and take us further in our holiness. Well, if we go ahead and, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, and we obey God and we get the victory over that sin, then of course there'll be great contentment and joy in that, but it won't because we say, ah, I had the resources to do that, but because we saw that God's grace was sufficient to be strong in the face of our weakness, and the praise and the glory goes to Christ. So our emotional life as believers should be very skeptical, distrustful, and dissatisfied with what we can produce out of ourself. That's why I think, and and Jay Adams has written on that subject too, that the business of self-image is pretty deadly in most of its conception because the idea is that you can be partially happy with what you are in the flesh, even saying, God has made me this way. Well, there's, there's a certain truth to that, but I'd much rather see people have their, their joy and their glory and their satisfaction in Christ in me, the hope of glory, rather than in self-image or self-satisfaction. And so, holy saints are going to mourn and rejoice at the same time. And if we don't understand the two sources of those different emotions, we'll wonder, how can they be so goofy to be unhappy and happy to be dissatisfied and satisfied, to be discontent and content. It doesn't seem to go together except the one arises from the flesh and the other from the Spirit of God. So one ought to die more and more. and the one, So by the time we get to heaven and we're glorified, uh, our self will be taken up in the fullness of Christ and there won't be any conflict between self-image and the image of Christ because that sanctifying, glorifying work will be complete there won't be any way to split our old man off from the new man because the old man will be gone forever and we will just reflect the glory of Christ. But that's not yet. That's later. Yeah, John.
1: One other thing, you know, we're talking an ideal here. One of the things that I've seen historically in OVC, is that you get the attitude of somebody who really feels trained to do the same properly in terms of Going to the brother, carrying these things out. All of a sudden you go to get to two or three and you get got fella. You know, you have gone a long way, we're not going to support you. Mm. And, and then at that point you get a lot of Christian brothers who say, What's the news? there's no sense to proceed? Or you carry it to the you know the first stages, nobody wants Nobody wants to go carried off the presbytery.
0: At what point do, you, do you hated it? Do you feel yeah, okay. Well, did you you probably didn't hear all of that. The point is that because of our ambivalence about the practice of discipline, a lot of times when you are trying to follow Matthew 18 and then you go to get somebody to help you, you might find that person saying, you, know, you shouldn't be doing this in the first place because I think discipline is unloving or uncaring or something. Some of the things we've been talking about, for whatever reason, they don't want to join you in the process. Or when you finally get to the stage of telling it to the church, you find a real reluctance on the part of the elders or maybe the presbytery to take it any further. So where do you give up and say, OK, uh, if nobody will help me follow this through, I'll just give up on it. Well, biblically, you just you can't give up on it. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of suffering for righteousness' sake that comes in just this context because you will find even brothers condemning you for doing exactly what the Bible says you ought to do. You know, it's just like in our, in our society um, when the news of a, of a murder and a murder trial and the possible execution comes to the attention of the society at large, who is the one who draws the sympathy? Is it the guy that got murdered in the first place? No, he's gone and forgotten. And nobody's watched the procedure until you come to the trial. And then, of course, here's this guy who might have his life taken away, or he might be thrown in jail for years and years and years and years, and all of our sympathy goes out to the offender. And we forget the other thing. Well, in the church, a lot of times that's the same way. A person who might be brought in on the second stage, or when the church comes in, they don't know what the original offense was, they don't maybe care what, what, what was going on in those early stages, and by the time it gets to them, Maybe it looks like the offender is the one that ought to have the sympathy and the one who's trying to restore him. So ultimately, the solution to that problem is this kind of teaching. I mean, I'm not saying you have to agree with every detail or something, but if we don't change our whole mindset concerning discipline, then we are going to have the system breaking down over and over, which is going to force the brother who really wants to do what the Bible says farther and farther out to the fringe. And we as Orthodox Presbyterians ought to know that better than anybody else. Well, not better than anybody else, but, but at least any other churches that aren't in this position, because that's exactly the position that Machen got into. He cared about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was condemned for not being loving and caring about the church, because he wanted the church to care about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, you know, we have a hero that was a good guy and a bad guy. So we ought to understand what it means to risk everything for the sake of trying to restore. And anybody who imagines that Machen was a nasty guy who just wanted to nitpick theology ought to read what he had to say as he wrestled through those issues. He loved the church and he cared about what she believed and what she was doing. And uh, it was injury on insult or insult on injury when finally that was rebuffed to the extent that they said, we simply can't tolerate a man like you in our midst anymore. So you're going to pay the price if you love God and you love one another, but God has promised that it it will be done. And uh, I'm encouraged in the two local churches that I've served as pastors that uh, the Sessions have been very eager to, to have this kind of, perspective on church discipline and have tried to carry it out and the people of God in those congregations have responded very much to that and they have learned and grown in their practice. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring a series like this to us is because I think we can all benefit from this. And the best way to make discipline effective, I think, is to make yourself more responsive to discipline. You see, if everybody's ready to receive it and ready to repent, and ready to grow in faith, then everybody else's job who has to point out the sin and show the correction and hold person accountable for change, his job's going to be easy. You know, you have children, you have some children who are going to buck you every step of the way, and you have other children that the minute you say, I would like you to do this, fine, no problem, I'll do it, and more besides. Well, which is the easy one to discipline? The one that responds freely to discipline. So maybe, you know, as we think about, I mean, we're talking about how to carry out discipline towards one another, but let's keep flipping the coin over and, and put yourself in the... You know, I'm not surprised that some people are hesitant to exercise discipline on another person because if they really applied the, the golden rule and said, how would I like that person to treat me? They say, if they come to me, I will chew them out and run them off with a shotgun. That's how I'll respond to their discipline if they dare tell me I've done anything wrong. Well, it's small wonder they're scared to death then when they think about going to another brother imagining that that brother's going to treat them the same way. What a gracious wonder of God's love that sometimes when you're sure you're going to get murdered if you go and rebuke a brother, you go and rebuke them and they say, Oh, great, I repent. Please help me. And uh, they respond, say, Well, imagine that. It works. God keeps his promises. People can be restored and healed. So we've got a long, long way to go on this. I think by God's grace, because of the ecclesiology and the view of the use of scripture in the Reformed churches, we've got most of the machinery in place. But we sort of lost the heart, lost the love, lost the faith, lost the hope that has to go in order to really motivate us to do these things. And that's why I said in the introduction, if you don't remember anything else about this week, if there's a hope that motivates you to do it a little bit more, we'll be that much better off. And uh, it will begin to snowball uh, as God's grace continues to manifest itself. Yeah. i think
1: trying to respond personally myself. I got the right ideas. It seems to me that I, my problem usually is uh, because of the negative tone of this, but I know it's important. I know i got to get around to it. There's so many things to do and everybody's so busy. you got to arrange time and it takes time to work with the case. Sure. I think a lot of our cases maybe it's not a matter of, and i told on it, it's a principle that, uh, it's, Three or four, those are I do. Right. And number one or two we never get it done and get around to it. I think be about life, so especially...
0: Sure. Yeah, and that's a good point. To the extent that we're influenced by a kind of negative view, then even if we're convinced it's right, even if we're convinced at least intellectually that it'll work, it does tend to go down the list on your list of priorities and oftentimes then you don't get off get to it, you know. I mean, I was convinced when I was in seminary that if I studied Greek hard enough, I could learn it like a Greek. But I didn't like Greek, and it didn't come easy, so it always got on the bottom of the homework list. You know, I'd study systematics or church history, something that I really enjoyed, and if I had any time left over, I'd study Greek. Well, as a consequence, I'm no great Greek uh, Greek scholar. Um, And that's the way we do with other things that we don't like to do. And every elder or pastor or every church member has certain things he likes to do and certain things he doesn't like to do. But there again I think really at the heart of it you know if we really thought that uh, that we could heal relationships and restore people by using this method then it would it would move up the ladder pretty quick because it would be one of the most effective fruitful joyful things that we could possibly do but we're influenced by other things that's that's certainly true enough yes
1: Already have tempered wild and all that. If young people can deal with young people and that sort of thing, you can cut a lot of things off, but it will be effective discipline and it won't come to a small occasion. I'm not saying that can't be done, it should be done, it should be in the case. But a lot of times things can be taken care of when they're
0: small rather than when they're less. A lot of times it's before the last one to know. Sure. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I'm really convinced that if if our churches are healthy, 90% of the discipline is going to be settled in the first or the first and second level. But because we all, as God's people, tend to neglect and postpone this thing, then the buck has to stop someplace, and oftentimes the first real definitive action comes when the pastor or the elders find out about it. And like, like you say, there's a lot of water over the dam, and things can be in a bad, bad strait. You know, one of the most joyful experiences that I've had at a pastor in the two church that, uh, churches that I've served is that as this discipline begins to take place, I get people come to me and say, "I had so and such, a, such and such a problem with so and so, but don't worry about it because we already got it settled." You know. But before that, it was, "Pastor, I got a problem with so and so. Will you fix it?" You know. And and maybe your sessions and you have heard that same thing. Well, it's great to think about that day when the people will come and say, I had a problem, but it's all taken care of, so don't worry about it anymore. See, then, then if discipline is down number four on your priority list, you don't ever have to get to it, or rarely have to get to it, because it's already gotten done, uh, done by somebody else. So that, that, And that's really great, because uh, because you see the enthusiasm then of God's people seeing that God is faithful to his promise. And they begin to become enthusiastic about restoring one another. You know, Kepha Sampangi talks about... Uh, it's not so much in the, in the context of church discipline as we've been talking about it, but in his book, A Grief Observed, they talked about the way in which they would learn to rebuke and correct one another on a personal level uh, and, and find forgiveness and cleansing and joy. And, um, and and they got so enthusiastic about this process that Kepha says they used to go down to the street and, and they greet one another and say, have you repented of your sins today? And that was the happiest thing they could say to one another. <laughs> You know, we sort of think, well, if somebody comes and says, have you repented of my sins? What do you mean? What have I done? You know, what's the problem? <laughs> but those Ugandan believers got the connection between repentance and joy. And they thought, well, if I want to be happy in the Lord Jesus, then I ought to repent and turn from my sins. And the best thing my brother can do if he wants me to be joyful in the Lord is to help me remember to do that. Well, you know, if we had that attitude, uh, we would be miles down the road to sanctification... But we would also be miles down the road to real love and tight fellowship. And you do find the other thing, and I mentioned this in my prayer, you know, you find, and some of you who have done this will have already experienced it, there just isn't quite anything like the relationship that comes out of the successful use of this church discipline. Somebody that you've been bitter against, or angry with or always irritated you and you finally bite the bullet and you go and talk to them and they respond openly and freely and you confess your sins to one another and you you repent and then that person is special to you because you've put some treasure in them and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And uh, you just can't let them go as if it didn't make any difference. You're bound to them with a new kind of bond. And uh, you do that again and again and again and again, and pretty soon this common life is so stuck together that uh, uh, it's real hard to split it apart. And uh, and that's what we need to hunger for and thirst for. And Jesus says this is the way we can get it. We don't just have to long for it as if it's something that we'll finally meet for the first time in heaven. We can have it here and now as God works in us and through us. Yeah, Jim. Sure, and if yeah, yeah, especially when you're getting the ball rolling, the point is that there may need to be some teaching to even lay a foundation for the kind of rebuke that you want to give. So if you're going to go to another person and and practice this, and they haven't the faintest idea what you're up to, then you may have to take the notes along or something like it. You know, I wouldn't recommend that you give them 12 lectures. Say, listen to these tapes because I'm coming by next week to straighten you out. <laughs> Although, you know, there may be some, some people who, who would really respond well to that. I mean, they might, they might say, great, I'd, I'd like to... And, you know, it might be something that you want to take, not so much necessarily the taste. So I'm really not trying to sell tapes. But, you know, this would be something good for a Sunday school class or a Bible study in your own local churches. If you can take back some enthusiasm uh, and, and catch a few other people on fire, then you're just that much farther down the line. Yeah?
1: Um, we talk about the love and the truth that hasn't there you know we're talking about what's happening with church but I really think in our culture in our personal life we really don't believe that love is doing some of these things. Even with kids, I mean that's you know I work with at parents I technically have to you know really convince them sometimes because love is not really sending child mm-hmm. I guess the child
0: sure yeah that's very true
1: yeah yeah good
0: point yeah the the, this kind of discipline this kind of care this kind of love is not something just for brother and sister adults within the church it's the same principle for the discipline of children that God gives to us And, you know, because of the nature of the covenant, we as Christian parents who are ministering to our children, our discipline of them is in Christ. Our discipline of our own children in covenant families is church discipline. It's Christian discipline, and it ought to be exercised that way. But, you know, those of you who are involved in Christian education, Christian school teachers or administrators or something, I mean, you've probably had plenty of times where a parent who neglects discipline, a believer or non-believer,
1: You know, we'll get all over
0: the teacher the first time so-and-so needs a SWAT, let's say. And you try and persuade them. And like you say, you can convince the kid quicker than you can convince the parents. But what a great joy it is when some of those parents come back after a few months of this and say, my son is a different child. You know, he's a a joy to be around. He does what is right. He's responsive and so forth. And they can see the fruit of that discipline. And, And, you know, Sherry, my wife, has taught school, and she's had some parents come and say, you know, I really didn't believe you. When you told me that this was all going to be for the good and they fought it but they saw the results and uh and so we can see that in all kinds of ministries and uh boy you talk about something that's a testimony before the watching world and this is one of the things that Schaefer mentions you know he wrote that book called the mark of a christian a few years ago which really kind of got the ball rolling on on uh, a consciousness that our relationships to one another have a big impact upon our witness to the world, whether or not they will believe that God sent Jesus and that we're his disciples by whether or not we have love for one another. Well, you get in that fractured culture that can't put anything together again once it's busted. Uh, And they begin to see a community where real healing takes place. This is why I, I, I quoted Isaiah 58. You know, We become known as the restorer of broken walls, as the rebuilder of old foundations, it's something unique on the face of the earth because paganism can't do it, but the spirit of God in the community of God's people can, and uh, and that's a glorious thing. Any other questions? Why don't you ask a few more questions? Because I'm not going to start this lesson. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but I we'll take a few more questions and then you know I don't know where I can get jacked up for another steamroller run, and you probably can't either. So let's have a few more questions, then we'll go have lunch. Yeah.
1: I think about yesterday when you were talking about, um, go, let's say, a situation has been, where you say a person may go in and self accuse like, says, and say, how, in your opinion, how bad would that have to be for a person to do that? I think that's something in my life that, so far, myself only reduced it, and it just doesn't seem to get small, like mm. it is the, and so when you do that, you
0: say, I look to the session. Mm. And okay, good, when good. Now the question is, if you're in a position, let's say, I mentioned the other day that if you if you felt bad enough about a sin or a breach with another person that you were not going to take the Lord's Supper, rather than doing that, or at least in connection with doing that, you ought to go to the elders and, and accuse yourself before them. This is my problem and I'm not getting it licked. Will you help me? Hold me accountable, counsel me or whatever. So the question is, how serious should that be? And uh, I'd say, if it's serious enough to concern you, and you are aware that efforts so far haven't been successful, then go get more help. You know, it, it's it's not a uh, sort of a black mark that where you say only as a last ditch effort. Any else. other person? Sure, sure. Well, you see, that's what your pastors are there for, your elders, is to minister the word of God to you. And if they if they've taught you enough that you know the problem but they haven't helped you maybe with the structure sufficient to see you really get victory over it, then they would delight to hear from you and to be able to help you that way. And there again, that's a question of, you know, do I want discipline? Yes, I do. I want to be free of this sin. But so far, what we've tried hasn't worked. And the elders may point out to you that there are already resources apart from their involvement that will be sufficient and just will kind of hold you to it by checking up on you. Or they may suggest some things that you really had not thought about that would be more successful. But that, that's, a, that's a fine way to institute, in effect, you're asking for pastoral counseling. But rather than going to them when you're nearly dead in your sin, you go quickly. You know, It's sort of like cancer treatment. You know, Doctors say, if you get here quick enough, we can do something for you. But if you wait until you're nearly dead, you'll die. So uh, if we want to be healthy spiritually, let's get the help we need. And if it can't come just within the family or hasn't so far, go ahead and go to your elders. That's what they're there for. And uh, I can tell you, as a pastor or an elder, there's nothing quite as thrilling as having a sheep come and say, "I want shepherding," and uh, and they'll give it because most of the time they're chasing sheep that don't want shepherding and pulling them back, you know. So when someone comes there and says, "Okay, do it," I say, "Fine, I love it." Yeah. Okay. What is repentance? Um, that's one of the questions I said I think I'm going to touch on a little bit later. So. Maybe, maybe uh, I'll try and in, incorporate that when I'm talking about the beginning of the first stage of Matthew 18. And it's not that I don't, want, I could give you a short answer now, but I think maybe it'll, it'll be more meaningful to us all in the context of that first stage. What are we looking for when we go to a brother to rebuke him?
1: But if I don't cover
0: it sufficiently, again, let me know. Yeah. No? i
1: Well, yeah, I, I am
0: going to say at least a word about that because, uh, yeah, there's some confusion about whether the, the key idea there is if he says he repents or if he actually repents. And, uh, but I always have to screw up my courage before I'm going to disagree with Jay Adams, so I need a little, a little time to psych up on that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we had a person come as a self-teacher to Friday night. The fear that people have is that that's is going to fall on like a complete break that you're a horrible person and never want to see those again some bad kind effects of uh, That usually, in my observation, is not happening. And in fact, what happened was that after a very long period of time, we We said, here's what we you to do. We outlined the point of action. We did not do some of the things but this works thing that this person was fearful. And we said, we're going to talk to you tomorrow. You did basically a But this is ignorance have
0: every expectation yeah yeah, yeah, and there are a lot of testimonies like that unfortunately I mean it, it's good but it's also too bad that that uh, those kind of cases don't usually get reported to the congregation as church discipline successes you know it's it's only usually when censure is pronounced then the whole congregation hears about it, but if if somebody comes as their own accuser and the problem is solved and the relationship is healed or the life is put back together again, we don't stand up the next Sunday and say, well, guess what happened this week? You know, we just let it go. And the session may rejoice and the individual may rejoice, but the whole congregation doesn't get to hear about the restoration. But, but often that is the case. You know, and, you know, when you go to a doctor, put it on worldly terms, you know, you don't expect the doctor to look at you in your disease and laugh and say, this is crazy. What are you doing here? You're sick. Get out. And as a matter of fact, you like the doctor, although you may be fearful of what he may say. It's never as bad as what you have thought might be, or or rarely as bad. And so it's nice to have the doctor say, this is what's wrong with you, and this is how we can fix it. That, That lifts a burden off your heart. Well, if those in the world who have not Christ can care for those who are ill, then how much more the soul surgeons that are your shepherds? If you come to them, do you expect them to laugh at you and say, get out of here, you're a sinner? I mean, that's what we are. That's what we're here for. And Jesus Christ receives sinners and he heals sinners. And it's great when an elder can say to you, this is what's wrong with you. And according to God's word, this is how we can fix it. So let's do it. It brings great joy. And even in the interim, as you're working through to consolidate that growth, there's great satisfaction, there's great peace in knowing where you're going and how you can get there. Uh, it's sometimes astonishing that we wrestle with years of frustration, failing to get the help for ourselves that we can provide for ourselves, and then immediately, you know, you, uh, it's like trying to treat your own ailment, and finally you say, well, I'm not getting any better and it's costing me a million dollars, I'm going to go see the doctor, and the doctor tells you, uh, you know, take two aspirins and go to bed and it makes you better. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I I haven't, yeah, I haven't found, yeah, I think it stands to reason that it would be. I can't say that in my experience it has been obviously more successful, uh, but I do think that small discipleship groups that that generate the kind of rapport and openness in which this kind of rebuking and correcting and restoring and forgiving can take place, it would make it just that much easier. Um, But a lot of times, you know, it's funny, it's just like, You would think that it would be easiest to do this in a family that's closest together, and yet oftentimes it's not. It's just there that we balk for whatever reason. So sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Yes, sir. (laughs) I've been in the OPC for a couple years. I haven't
1: had a chance to get acquainted with you. I like what you're saying, and I love you as my brother and Christ, but who are you? Good. Yeah, yeah. He uh,
0: he warned me he was going to ask this question. I told him I'd answer it. Then he signaled me to say that I hadn't answered it yet, so I knew he was going to get it before we go. So, uh, Who am I? Well, let me see. I'll give you the uh, real cheap tour. Uh, I was born and raised in the Los Angeles area, not in a Christian home, but went to Christian schools throughout my uh Elementary through high school years, except for one year. That was primarily out of a concern for academics more than anything else, although my parents did recognize that there was a lot of moral influence from Christianity that was worthwhile. And uh, so I came to know the Lord through the evangelistic work in the Christian school that just went on during high school and began to attend the Baptist church on my own. And um, then I went to Westmont College from 1966 to 70 in Santa Barbara, which is a evangelical Christian college. And there I met Greg Bonson, who was a classmate of mine in my second year, sophomore year. And he was the first Reformed person I ever met in the flesh. And an enthusiastic... <laughs> I'd read about a few of them, but I thought they were all dead long ago, you know. And he was an enthusiastic Reformed believer and an enthusiastic... Orthodox Presbyterian, so he began to work on me, and after three years had sufficiently convinced me that I ought to at least think about going to seminary, that I decided to go to Westminster for a year. Uh, My wife, Sherry, then my girlfriend and fiancé, was one year behind me in college, so I had a year. We were going to get married when she graduated, and there was a year in '70 that I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll go study theology for a year, that ought to be fine and uh, then get married, and then I was going to go on to grad school in English literature, which was my major. Well, when I got to Westminster Seminary, I had a few courses, and increasingly the Lord just laid on my heart um, that I ought to think about going into the pastorate. It, it, to me, it was a ridiculous idea, uh, and uh, both because I knew the condition of my own heart and my own life as much as the fact that that just wasn't something that I'd ever imagined uh, doing. Jay Adams put the screws on me a little bit after preaching course and said that I ought to think about becoming a preacher. Um, so I went back and got married and told Sherry I was going to become a minister, and if I had questions, she had more questions. But I was able to persuade her that we ought to at least go back and take two more years of seminary and sort of see where it comes by that. Well, during that period of time, the Lord really worked in my life and And since we were both from Baptistic backgrounds, we had a lot of Reformed faith to learn. And that was the first place that we were actually in an Orthodox Presbyterian church. And probably as influential as anything was the loving care that was shown by the Hatboro congregation to us when I was a student. We lived 30 minutes from the church. Almost every Sunday that we wanted it, somebody had us home so that we wouldn't have to go home and then come back in the evening and so forth. So we got to know some Reformed families saw obedient children who liked to stay at home with their parents on Sunday afternoon, who engaged in conversation with adults, I mean, just things that we had never seen before. So seeing the common life of the people of God was very, very convincing to us, and we wanted to have that kind of family, be in that kind of church. So all of those things put together, the Lord finally confirmed that call to the ministry. So... Uh, the year before I graduated, which was the summer of 1972, I came out to Southern California for half a summer, and I was a summer intern at Hacienda Heights with Wilson Albright. In the second half of the summer, I was an intern with Robert Churchill in Sonora, California, up in the Gold Rush country. And uh, then after that summer, I went back for my last year at seminary, and he retired for the first time. You know, He retired three or four times before the Lord called him home. Uh, planted churches in the meantime, you know. Those old Orthodox Presbyterian ministers are a rare breed, aren't they? I mean, they just, praise God for them. Anyway, so he retired once to give me a slot, and uh, I don't know whether he knew he was giving me a slot, but uh, because I'd known the congregation just before that, they called me to candidate and called me just before I graduated. So as soon as I graduated, we went on out there, and from 1973 to '83, I pastored the church in Sonora, and then Bayview called me down to Chula Vista in 83, and so it'll be five years in September that I've been down there. Now, I've done all kinds of disreputable, crazy, weird things in the meantime, but uh, you know that's, that's the outline. That may not tell you who I am, but like Mike says, who knows? <laughs>